What's going on, guys? Welcome to episode 48. It's August 30th of 2020. And since it's 2020, it's been a hell of a week. You know, Paul George had a few off games that he later attributed to a few dark mental places that luckily his teammates were able to bring him out of. He came back with an awesome bounce back game. We get into that. There was the unfortunate shooting of Jacob Blake that led to the Milwaukee Bucks sitting out game five. They sat out game five of a playoff game against Orlando Magic. We get into that. And then there's just the, everything that's going on with the social injustice and just how to be a person, how to treat people with respect. We get into that. And then one of my, my personal favorite part of this episode, Dr. Hose and Dr. Trujillo, they get into the physiological. They, they, they get into like the nuances of what's going on with the amygdala, the frontal lobe, and explaining that they break down how does someone have a panic attack? How can you mitigate a panic attack? How can you flex your mentals? How can you work on your mental? How can you make yourself help yourself have better decision makings? We get into all of it on episode 48. Cue the music, let's go. Flex those muscles. I love that. That was good. Flex was really those muscles. Do, do you feel me? Do you feel me? Do you feel me? All right, let's get it. Let's get it going. I'm sure, I know you guys saw the, uh, the Celtics put it on the Raptors earlier. Yeah, I, let's let him get settled in. These a lot of these game ones have been interesting. Yeah, they have been. But the cream rises to the top at the end of the day. Did you think it was a little foreshadowing when the Magic beat the Bucks game one? And you think back to I believe the Magic beat the Raptors mm. game one in the first round of the playoffs last year. Did anyone else think that? Woo, maybe this is a little foreshadowing of what's to come. No. Okay, out of here. Come on. I mean, <laughs> I, I, listen. Has 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 Giannis elevated his game beyond where it was last year? I don't think he has. I think he's the same guy. During the regular season, he has, but we'll see. It's all about the playoffs, man. It's all about the playoffs. It's all about. Do you trust Giannis? They're down one. They're tied. They're they're up one, and, and he has the ball. Do you trust him to make that shot? Like, if they put up that wall defense, no. do you trust him to make it? Or do you, tr- do you trust Middleton or uh, George no, Hill? No, none of those guys. You know, you know who you trust? You trust Jimmy Butler. Uh, yeah. I, I'm riding, I am riding that train. I think Jimmy's a guy, if he had a little bit more physical tools, meaning maybe a little bit more athletic, he's got the right mindset. He's a, what do they call it, a junkyard dog. You know, he's going to outwork you. He's going to get right up in your ass he's going to do everything necessary in order to win he's going to try to motivate you the best way he knows how which is to push you harder and harder until you break but i just don't know if he has that elite level talent like a kevin durant or lebron james where he can close a game or a Kawhi leonard where he's going to close the game he has he has talent in some ways but he does not have the playmaking ability to need to to you know put it all together because you can't just be a scorer you can't just – I mean, he's a great defender, or at least used to be. He's, he's a good defender now. Uh, and he's a really, really good, if not great, scorer of the basketball, like one-on-one. He can break you down and all that. He can shoot basketball. But he's not necessarily a playmaker in terms of a guy that's a threat off the dribble that can, like, get other guys, you know, the, the best yeah. possible shot. Well, you know, he's not going to, like, run the offense, you know, things like that. He's, he's more of a – kind of like a – 
he's like a street version of DeMar DeRozan. I don't know. That's not the right way to put it, but he, cause he can't really shoot the three at all. Although he elevates his game in the playoffs. He shot the three really yeah. well in that first yeah. round, yeah. but the Miami heat, I don't think they necessarily need that. Like one ball stopping go-to guy. Cause they have so many shooters on their team. Drogic dominated the Pacers in clutch time. Like Pacers played awful. Ugh. That was bad, but. I just think that's a well-built team. If you're looking at well-built team, I think the East is filled with a bunch of really, really, really good teams. The Celtics, the Raptors, the uh, Bucks, and the Heat. Really, the, probably the mm-hmm. all-around best teams. I think they don't yeah. have as much talent as they don't have as much talent as 76ers. Although they lost Simmons, we know how that played out. They don't have as much talent as the Lakers. The Lakers have the two best, two of the top five best players in the league. The Clippers, we thought, had two of the best. 15 players in the league that's to be determined i don't know if i would ever put george in top 15 i mean that's he a was bit number of three a in mvp voting last year though come on man <laughs> come on man we're gonna get into paul george's mental struggles for sure but i mean the mental struggle is definitely real but like jordan never had like those mental struggles you know like how good can you actually be if like you if you succumb to those struggles that's not even an issue it's not even <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you, Ben, 100%. The mental struggles are one thing, but he's, he's a couple things. He hasn't actually won enough at this stage of his career. So you've been in the league eight, nine, ten plus years. You're not like a Donovan Mitchell or one of these other guys that just recently kind of became prominent. He's been around for a long time. He doesn't really have the success. And when you realize, you know, he has all the tools, like the physical tools, the physical sort of, capability and talent but he's not able to put it all together and have it translated into actual success usually because if you want to call it mental breakdown that's fine but it's because in the in the waning moments of the game he's not the same guy that he had been in terms of his level of dominance throughout the first three quarters yeah it's been shown time and time again well one could say that it's it's a mindset issue but i would argue armin that he had a lot of success and in his first four, five years in the league, he went toe-to-toe with LeBron in the Heatles, took him to seven and six games consecutive years in the Eastern Conference Finals. So I would argue he had a lot of success early, but the, he wasn't the focal point of that team at that time. He, uh, although he was their predominantly their best player. But the interesting thing I find about the Paul George story, we can talk about this ad nauseum, is he's a guy who... Who was their number one option? I'm sorry, I just want to be clear about... They had a, there was another guy on that team. They had Dan, they had Danny Granger, right. but he was he had started getting injuries. Granger he, for about he, two years, but he guy. wasn't playing at that level when they made the Eastern Conference Finals. That was a great team, well coached with your current LA Lakers coach Vogel. But yeah. I've seen him as someone who we all expected to be this alpha number one guy, top five player in leagues, gonna be a number one guy on a title team after he pushed LeBron because he has all the physical tools. We saw it. Then he, then he, the, what happens? Olympics has a horrific ankle injury. Horrific. Takes about a year and a half physically to recover from that. But has he actually mentally recovered from that? That's a question because that's a trauma. And that, we don't know if that's always in the back of his mind when he's driving to the basket. He's had, he had recent shoulder surgery. So maybe those injuries are in the back of his head. Those are distractors, like we always talk about. Um, I'll make the transition over to Victor Oladipo, who's coming off that ruptured quad, and he looked like he didn't know what he's doing. He kind of picked it up in that last game. 
but it just physically you come back physically before you come back mentally oftentimes. And I just wonder if he's not completely recovered from these injuries or he's just essentially, he's just still trying to find his identity. He went to Oklahoma city. He had to play with, we all know Russ is, thinks he's the alpha dog, but we know how that works out when he's paired with other people who think they're alpha dogs. And now he talked about in this post-game interview after game one against the Mavericks, where he clearly stated Kawhi's the guy, he's the number one guy. He is the alpha. He, he stated that. So I had a feeling like, all right, pressure's off. PG doesn't have to be the guy. He should be able to thrive as the number two guy. He has all the skills, the physical tools. But he hasn't so far. He's had one. I think yeah, he hasn't so far. I think he's had one really good game in the first round. And today, we're recording this on Sunday, he dropped, I think, 17 points, two for seven or two for nine shooting from three. So still struggling. Yeah. Um, and, and ask yourself this question. I mean, it's not as if he's been in a slump throughout the bubble, right, throughout the, uh, the seeding games, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it seemed like he was playing really well at that time. Oftentimes, he's the leading scorer of the team, made big plays, made buzzer-beating shots, these different things. And you're like, oh, wow, like Paul George is ready. They look great. I mean, as a team, they looked great going into the playoffs. Then all of a sudden – you know, since the playoffs started, he's just playing uh, differently. And, it, and it's hard to understand. It's hard to really know because, to your point, if it were an adjustment disorder thing that was a chronic adjustment disorder in terms of him being able to readjust and reacclimate back to playing at peak performance, highest level on the court, giving his all, worried about the possibility that that injury may happen again, that might cause you to not always – you know, go quite as hard or you kind of worried in the back of your mind. But again, it's this inconsistency. If he were always playing, you know, with, with, you know, sort of this lack of full effort, or if perhaps he would get injured, we saw him get injured or, or not, I shouldn't say get injured, but maybe gets hurt. Uh, and then he's not able to bounce back quite as well because the, the pain that he experiences reminds him of his injury. I could see something like that, but I just haven't seen, the connection to his decline in performance with something specifically psychologically oriented around that injury. It seems more like maybe a general emotional let- letdown that happens as a result of elevated pressure. Yeah. And I think the, the thing I want to point out is we mentioned he's, this is someone with immense physical tools and if you're not making your shot, okay, that's fine. He's a great shooter, but if the shot's not there someday, he's got enough physical tools to be a Draymond Green, to be a, a P.J. Tucker and be a spot-up shooter in the corner or, or grind and get rebounds. He used to be one of the best defenders in the league. He can, If he's not hitting his shots, he can lock down on defense. He can get assists. He can, right. he can get rebounds. But we, when we saw those, those, I think, three horrible games he had, game two, three, and four, he was completely absent on, in all facets of the game. And was that because his shots didn't fall early and then he got in his head and it affected the rest of his gameplay and he wasn't able to compartmentalize? There's a lot of different factors going on. It is. You know what, what, what's interesting about Paul George for me is when I kind of take a closer look, and, I, and you know, until I have a, a client or an athlete client in the room one-on-one in that kind of confidential format, I'm never going to, to really, you know, give any strong assertions because, you know, we really never know. We're just speculating at well, this can. point. We're just gold, speculating. Gold water. Gold water and, you know, Goldfinger and all the above, right? I mean, we just <laughs> got to – but, no, but the point is, you know, it, what it feels like to me, just as a guy that is, you know, somewhat empathic and I, 
you know, I do try to pay attention to what guys are feeling and, and, and analyze these things. It, it seems like with, with Paul, it's not even a matter of like setback and negativity being the thing that really, you know, kind of, you know, he feeds off of and, and maybe, you know, is what gets in his head and sets him, sets him back. It almost seems like when the, the, uh, there's sort of a lot of positivity, when there's, when there's some sort of like victory that he has or some achievement that he has that then creates greater expectations, right? It, you know, it's like some people, they'll, they'll accomplish things that others didn't expect. So there's an added level of pressure, you know, more expectations than they themselves may have, you know, been prepared for. And, you know, some guys respond well to that. You know, they embrace the uniqueness of a new challenge, you know, and, and, and the ability to rise uh, to another level. And I think some guys wilt under the pressure, maybe because they're thinking something like, man, I wouldn't want to disappoint people, right? I wouldn't want to disappoint you know, all of these, these fans, all these people that, that, you know, that are pulling for me and pushing for me to, to accomplish this new goal. And, and that just kind of like um, that negative energy, you know, where you're thinking about mm -hmm. other oh, people, yeah. where you're thinking about other people rather than worried about yourself and what you have to do. I think that's what gets in the way. We, we talked in a, in a previous episode with, you know, Dr. Dr. Jacobs, one of the pioneers of sports psychologists about the importance of being able to sort of like lock in to your role, your service, your purpose for the team in team sports or individual sports, be able to just understand what you have to do. We're realizing that it's not about anyone else, right? It's not about the fans. It's not about even your family. It's not really about the coach. It's about you, what you have to do for your team right, for your team to help them accomplish their goals. And um, yeah, yeah got to be selfish. Healthy selfish. Healthy selfish. And that's, that's where that gratitude piece comes in. That's right, gratitude. That gratitude piece, you switch the negative filter into a positive filter, and I'll give you an example. Paul George, just what you said, after a couple bad games in the playoffs, he uh, went out to social media and he made a post that said, I don't give a fuck what anybody think of me. Fuck is you thinking about me for anyway? Sorry for the explicitness there. Um, and guess, and then <laughs> he, he mentioned after he had a good performance in game five, um, which the Clippers went on winning that game, he mentioned that he actually spoke to his teammates and they, one of the things they advised him to do was to get off social media and filter out the negative and probably be more grateful. And he, and he spoke glowingly about the, how grateful he was to have the team outs to help pull him out of that dark place is what he called it. And just to like make this more broad than Paul George. We've seen this with, before LeBron James goes zero dark 30 in the playoffs. Absolutely. And yeah. not this year. Cause there's so, there's so much going on socially. Too much going on. You, he has to be present in that because he's, he's, he's bigger than basketball in a sense. So that is something that all these players would benefit for us currently in this environment, in the bubble with all these different, distractors and, and we don't even want to necessarily call these things distractions but all these things going on in the world it's important to to focus do your gratitude exercises be more mindful in order to be able to accomplish the things you want to accomplish and paul george i'm sure he wants to accomplish winning an nba championship and all these players do among other things yeah but if he wants to accomplish that then he's going to to have to be willing to accept 
and even embrace, you know, the, the pressure that's going to come along mm-hmm. with that, that, that responsibility. Heavy is the head that, that wears the crown. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, here we are in the wake of this pandemic and the wake of, you know, this return of the NBA season, which really in many ways is the kind of the sports energy that was supposed to fuel and precipitate, you know, a more broad return to sports, right? Where we're on the brink of, for example, having the NFL return, um, possibly college football. We'll see how that goes. You know, I know some conferences are going to be going and, and playing and others are not. We'll see how that kind of works out. You know, Major League Baseball obviously is just kind of getting into their, their, their full swing and all this excitement is supposed to be happening because we're getting a return of the sports that we all love. In the midst of this, uh, Paul George, interestingly that we're talking about about him, he came out, um, I'd say it's about about a week ago, and and, uh, he mentioned how on social media, he had been in a a dark place and that he had been depressed and and didn't really give a whole lot of details, but I think what what folks kind of took from that, that was, man, these athletes, they, they've been kind of, kind of almost like trapped in this bubble for months now. They haven't had a lot of contact with their families. They certainly haven't had contact with their fan base uh, outside of social media. And, and it's like, how, have we really looked into this? Have we really done our own due diligence as you know, health professionals, the mental health uh, community, mental health care community, to, to understand how this experience may have affected the psychology of the performance of these athletes and does Paul have a point, right? Is, is, is this something that any other athletes are experiencing as well? And right after that, right after he came out with that, all of a sudden we have this, you know, horrific police brutality demonstration in Kenosha, Wisconsin, you know, involving another young black male, Jacob Blake. And, uh, you know, it, it, it really, set off a firestorm uh, in, in the entire sports world, particularly in the NBA, where uh, an unprecedented thing happened. I mean, something that's never happened before, at least in the modern era of sports, where a professional basketball team sat. They, they essentially um, decided to, to have a, a work strike in which they did not dress and perform for a playoff game. Um, Milwaukee Bucks, decided to, to sit out their game, their playoff game against the Orlando Magic. And, uh, you know, it, it really, I think a lot of people had to kind of wake up to the power of the athlete, to the experience of the just the court, the field, the track, um, you know, beyond the field of play and recognize that these guys are human. You know, they have real feelings uh, that can be impacted by real events, you know, like, uh, for example, the, the terrible social injustice that we're seeing and, and racial uh, prejudice that we're seeing uh, just about every day these days. All the, all the money and the fame in, in the world is not going to protect you from feeling these things. And, and, and it's just, that's the biggest argument I see. It's like, oh, you make so much money, you're so privileged that doesn't shield you from feeling negative emotions and from witnessing horrific acts and, and having it disrupt you. 
and maybe not wanting to go to work or not wanting to just maybe not even wanting to get out of bed. Like it, these things, what, what's going on in our country right now is, is traumatizing for a lot of individuals. And I think you said, I couldn't have said it better myself, Armin. We got to realize that these are individuals that are seeing these things just like we are, but they're expected to perform on under the bright lights with um, hundreds of thousands, millions of people watching and just go about their day. Like nothing's yeah. wrong to entertain us, to get our minds off these things so we can move forward. But it's, 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 there's, there's so much more going on. Um, I, Ben, I did want to, I don't know if you know what the gold water rule is, but do you know that I just wanted to clarify if you didn't know it is, it's a rule. It's, <laughs> it's essentially states that it's unethical for psychiatrists or mental health professionals to comment or diagnose an individual that they haven't had a patient encounter with. So that's gold water rule. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. That, I mean, that makes, that makes sense. You shouldn't be able to yeah. diagnose someone if you haven't yeah, seen them. Like, how could Absolutely. It, be, it be actually became a thing because, you know, after Trump was elected um, and, you know, he started kind of having his, his rants and his speeches in which he would, you know, make obviously a lot of uh, derogatory statements and, you know, kind of bullyish statements. People started calling him a narcissist and he actually had psychiatrists come out publicly, make public statements confirming, oh, yeah, we might be a narcissist. But they were actually in violation of the Goldwater rule if they did not have a true medical exam. Um, and just, just another thing, so. like when we were talking about how, you know, these players aren't, you can have all the money and the fame you want, but you're not immune to feelings. I'm going to take it a little step further. You know, you have players like, um, like Sterling Brown, who really relate to this police brutality and these social injustice. Sterling Brown, who's a wing player for the Bucks, And in 2018, like what, for what should have been a mere, parking violation no more than a parking violation at the time he was 22 years old he was thrown to the ground after being handcuffed by by a group of police and then while he's on the ground handcuffed starts getting tasered so now so on top of just being a person with feelings and seeing these stories and feeling some sort of emotion on top of that some players actually relate to that on a deeper level so i can't imagine well, players like Sterling Brown, who actually relate to that, when they're in the bubble and they're not with their family, they're not with their friends, and they're essentially hearing all this, as Tori said, traumatic news. Because, I mean, on a psychological level, it, this is actually a traumatic, this is, this is actually a traumatic experience. This fits the yeah. textbook definition of a traumatic experience, for sure. And to experience all of that alone, that's, mm-hmm. that's rough. How do you get up? How do you get up in the day and how do you go about your business? You know? No, it's it's crazy, man. Um, I, I, yeah, I. That's a that's a such a sad story, and and story is one that that far too many people that look a certain way, that you know, have a certain style of dress, have a certain kind of disposition. Uh, it's, it's unfortunately the experience of far too many of those kinds of people, and that's really the essence of racism. The essence of racism is when, uh, let's say, law enforcement, or really anyone, but in this case, law enforcement, encounters an individual, and because of the the sort of very superficial differences, uh, having nothing to do with the commission of the, the crime itself, but just the superficial differences between what that 
individual has experienced before and what they're you know sort of in, in encountering and experiencing when they interact and engage with this this new person um, that they should or that they are 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 not just um, you know that that they would interpret those differences as being reasons to treat that other individual with disrespect, you know, or treat that other individual with hate. Um, and what happens is that the differences you see in the other person, the differences how they look, uh, how they speak, uh, how they dress, you know, how they just sort of, you know, present themselves inspires fear. Inspires fear that you would not experience if you were to have a similar interaction with someone, someone else that you you felt more connected to, based on your previous experience, right? So if you related to that person better, a different person, maybe a person that, from your family or or your community, your neighborhood, um, you wouldn't have that same fear when encountering them in the commission of a crime, and as a result, you're you're going to behave towards that person the way you would behave in any other circumstance, right? Within the, the boundaries of your training, within the boundaries of your, your best judgment, and you're gonna likely make the, the right decision about how to engage that person and ultimately detain them if you have to detain them, question them and investigate if you have to do that, or, or arrest them if you have to arrest them, you know, to bring them into ju you know, for justice, uh, or let them go, right? I mean, there's a lot of different you know, outcomes, a lot of different decisions that a police officer has to make. But when you don't have that fear, right, when, when you can just make these decisions, you know, comfortably and with, within, again, the, the framework of your training, things can go a lot better. And it's unfortunate we just we still don't have yeah. yeah, I do want to say, like, being a police officer is one of the toughest jobs, if not the toughest job in this country. And yeah. you're interacting with the public, but you're also interacting with individuals who commit crimes and sometimes violent individuals. So you may go into an encounter already with an elevated um, level of fear, regardless of the person or individual you're going to see. And then like Armin was speaking of, some people bring their own baggage or biases to the table and that will increase the level of fear based off how that individual looks. And when you go into an encounter with a high levels of fear, that sparks the amygdala and we talked about the amygdala before the emotion center of, of our brain where yeah. is you put you in a little bit of a fight or flight feeling or, or or system and that diminishes our frontal lobes abilities to counteract that and our frontal lobes responsible for impulse control it's responsible for our rational thoughts our executive functioning our ability to do things that are are appropriate in the moment um, so when you have these high levels of fear, you, you're not thinking straight, essentially. You're not thinking rationally, and you're more likely to revert to violent acts or acts that aren't rooted in, in rational thinking. And that's why so many people are confused when you see yeah, exactly. what a lot of people would characterize that as an overreaction, shooting someone in the back seven times because they were getting into their car whether or not they were reaching for a knife or they found a knife somewhere in the car, that's besides the point. There was what, three, four 
cops there trying to see a lot of folks there that, 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 that could have uh, intervened to create a better outcome for sure mm -hmm. and I don't want to get too much into the the nitty-gritty of, of the specific event but what we're talking about here is police officers in my estimation need to have really strong distress tolerance skills emotion regulation skills because they are in these high fear laden environments constantly their job is constant fear for the most part um they're and they have to be able to regulate it they exactly have to be, that's part of their job part of the job part of the job is, is a skill set just like we talk about basketball and athletes right if you can't shoot the basketball you're probably not going to be in the nba too long you know if you can't you know make the right basketball play you don't have that that type of mindset where you understand the dynamics the chemistry where you have to be on the floor you know it's a skill set Every profession is a skill set. Police officers, one of their skill set has to be motion regulation, uh, threat sort of management, and uh, and you have to be able to, it's fear regulation, like fear and emotion regulation and management to make the right decision at the right time. Tori, I want to I want to touch on on what you're saying because it's so important. We have this mental status exam. It's a huge part of our overall evaluation as psychiatrists. We've talked about it before, but I just want to highlight two particular features of the exam that kind of go often under the radar, but they're really, really important when you're doing a determination of someone, someone's mental status, and that's insight and judgment. Insight and judgment are these two sort of more abstract components of the exam. I mean, the exam is all clinical. It's, it's based on observation and our own experience and sort of educated uh, interpretation of you know, what the, uh, the experience of our client or our patient is. And the insight and judgment, we usually try to, to assess by asking certain questions. And we believe, almost like the, court, the courts do, we call it like a reasonable person standard, right? Reasonable person standard is something the, court, the courts use to determine, you know, you know kind of a, almost like a common sense test, you know, like, Given a set of circumstances, what would most likely a person do who is trying to be lawful? Um, and, you know, a similar kind of thing we do in mental health and psychiatry is trying to determine, well, like, most likely, you know, what, what, what would you do, for example, if you saw a letter uh, that was stamped, sealed, you know, signed, you know, ready to go, just lying there on the street, um, what would you do if you actually recognize this? Would you steal it? <laughs> you know, would you open it? Uh, or would you put it in the mailbox, you know, a uh, good Samaritan? And, you know, honestly, you'd be surprised. Um, you know, you, you confront a person in, in crisis uh, or who's, for example, you know, either demented uh, or psychotic. You ask them that question and you're, you're bound to get a variety of different answers. And I say that because we have to be able to perceive when, when you know, someone has the right judgment and when they do not. And there's a lot of different ways to assess judgment, but when someone is in a crisis, when there's fear, right, when they're in that state, that's when their judgment as a police officer has to be the best. Um, we can't have guys out there with guns, loaded guns, ready to go, and a batch who can't uh, make the right decisions because of pressure and fear, you know, that, that's not acceptable. So I think uh, to, to your point, uh, Ben, from the original question, uh, you know, the way to, to really best help 
uh, in situations to, to, to prevent a Sterling Brown, I think would be to, to really transform the training uh, that police have and, and, and ultimately the screening process for who gets to be a police officer. Because you first wanna, wanna make sure that anybody that gets the opportunity to have a gun and a badge is, is capable, right? That they have the, the mindset uh, and, and the values um, to be able to do the job. It's a very difficult job, as, as Tori said. It's not easy, it's not for everybody. And then once you've identified those people that can do the job because they passed the screening tests that would include a psychological profile, uh, then you have to go, you have to put them through a rigorous training program in which they're put into very difficult training environments, high stress environments, and you see them perform. You watch them perform and how they do, and, and you, you, you question their judgment, you, you challenge their, their insight, uh, or their ability to, you know, their awareness. Mm -hmm. How well do they understand the situation? Uh, and then the judgment is how well do they respond to the threat? Yeah, that's what I want to see. That's, I love that. It's all about the response. It's all about are these individuals because you're going to get put in environments where the fight or flight's going to skyrocket. But are they able to control that? Are they able to handle that? Are they able to handle that distress? Are they able to tolerate it? And are they able to regulate their emotions to get their emotional temperature yeah. down so they can think more rationally and they can make the most appropriate decision in that moment? And ultimately, it has to be done pretty quickly because lives are on the line in a lot of these cases. Um, and they held guns. And I think that whole revamping and retraining process is going to take some time. I think in the interim, what we can do, what our country can do is to provide more external oversight, um, have an outside body that will give these officers who, who murder people or who are found to use excessive force, make them go through the judicial process, make them go through some sort of process where like everyone else does, if they commit a crime, um, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have impunity. Absolutely. Um, and I know that's, it, it's difficult because how are you going to get people to sign up to be a police officer? Cause they get shot at all the time. They witness things without this, this impunity. <laughs> but I just, at the end of the day, it's, it's going to take time. Well, it, it is. And, and I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, I think that what, what we often do is we look at the situation and we say, okay, well, this police officer, maybe they were acting in self-defense. Um, you know, it was the heat of the moment, the heat of battle, the heat of, you know, combat, whatever. Um, even though that's really not the way they should be looking at uh, a community of people as, as a combat zone. But let's just say that this is, what it, what it comes down to for them because of, of the, the threats involved. Um, you know, I think we have to be careful to, to understand that their role in this environment is not a com as a combatant, right? They're not a combatant. You know, the, the guys or, or gals involved with the commission of the crime, they may be the combatants, but you're not. You're the protector, right? You're the peacekeeper, the peacemaker, your role is ultimately to bring these individuals to justice. You know, uh, defense, you know, in particular your own self-defense should really be uh, secondary, if not tertiary. And that's what you sign up for. Now, you mentioned something very interesting, Tori. Uh, you mentioned immune, you know, immunity. Uh, you know, we, we think of immunity, we think of qualified immunity as it relates to police officers. 
And this is something that, you know, a lot of people uh, believe is, is, a, is a statute that courts have that prevents police officers from, you know, from being, being prosecuted in the commission of some sort of, as you mentioned, a crime like murder or the presumption of murder, um, like, you know, when, when they've shot and killed someone that they were supposed to be apprehending. And I just want to clarify that for a minute, just so our audience understands. Qualified immunity is a civil court standard. It's not a criminal law standard. And what that means is uh, what cops are actually protected from with this immunity is not from being prosecuted for committing a crime like murder. It protects them from civil litigation, right? So if, for example, a citizen who had been wronged or their families um, wanted to go after the, the officer directly for damages, you know, maybe in the form of some sort of uh, you know, monetary exchange, some sort of you know, settlement, uh, the officer would be protected, almost like an insurance policy. I think the state would probably intervene and, 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 and cover that expense for them. That's what qualified immunity is about. Uh, as far as criminal defense, there is no defense. Uh, officers, um, they can be prosecuted for murder like anyone else. And I think it often comes down to just a district, a district attorney's office that's willing to look at it for what it really is and, you know, and, and, and say the truth. The truth about what really happened. And, you know, we, we don't need to get into the, the politics and so forth, but, you know, I, I think when you talk about the way that things are structured uh, with most justice systems locally and at the state level, if not federal level as well, there's such an entanglement between, on one hand, the police force, law enforcement, and then uh, the prosecution, right? The, the, the attorney's office, the district attorney, uh, the court system, there's so much entanglement, whether it be, you know, uh, donation of monies to support uh, some of their causes, you know, whether it be friendships and just, you know, personal relationships that are, are forged between these two entities. But it's the kind of system that has links that are unlikely to result in prosecutions, right? Because they're friends in many cases, or they work together as team as a team. Um, and I think that when you look at the, those systemic kinds of, of issues in terms of how these organizations are set up, how they work together, those are really the areas I think, uh, in addition to, to, to training and, and tactical differences that need to be made these are the areas that I think are going to be most important to look at down the road, um, the least of which I think is going to also involve with this training, especially the addition of a, of a sports mental health specialist, whether that be a psychologist, psychiatrist, ideally both, you know, an entire program really set up to, I think, uh, you know, help to both uh, screen individuals, you know, to be a part of the police force, to make sure that we have the, the right people with the right skill set and the right mindset to be involved. And then also, I think, as part of the training process, you know, to help these individuals learn the stress management techniques, uh, learn the mental fitness exercises, and, and, you know, and all the different things that we talk about all the time. Mindfulness, gratitude, uh, resilience, integrity, and communication. You know, I mean, you think about it, Tori, a lot of these situations I think could be so much better handled and have such better outcomes 
if guys just communicated, you know, and just said, Hey, you know, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you, you know, it's tough to communicate when you're in fight or flight. That's true. I I wanted to speak on one thing um, with regard. This is difficult because ultimately police, they lead, ultimately they utilize fear as a tool to, to, to have citizens obey laws. All of us to a certain extent are fearful or afraid of going to jail or being punished for doing something bad. And I think utilizing fear is appropriate to a certain extent. And there are individuals in this, in society, we all know the, the serial killers, the, the antisocial personality individuals who have disregard for others, can't really feel empathy for other people, that very callous individuals, they always are under threat and they live in this dog-eat-dog world. There, our prisons are made up about 40 to 70% of these types of individuals. Sure. So it's very difficult. And that's a whole other issue as, as, as to why we have so many individuals like that. And is, is jail the best place for them? Can they be rehab, rehabilitated in another sense? But that's a conversation for another time. Yeah. But in those, with those individuals, ultimately maybe fear is the best tool to keep them down the straight and narrow. And ultimately that's where I kind of empathize with police officers to a certain extent is when they come into contact with individuals who have no empathy for others and are willing, it's a dog eat dog world. So I'm willing to, to kill you in order for me to survive. There's individuals out there like that. So there needs to be force equal to that on the Mm -hmm. side of police. They need to be able to respond and use that fear as a tool in order to keep order. But having said that, I think for the majority of individuals, by the, the far majority of individuals, can be policed and protected because ultimately that's their job is to protect us through respect and through developing bonds and relationships. We talked about in previous podcasts of police officers went around like canvassing and shaking hands and getting to know the people in their community that they serve to develop some sort of trust and comfort. That way, when there are these heightened levels of emotion and things happen, there's already a relationship there between the individuals. And ideally, that can lower that fight or flight response when you, when you already have some sort of connection made. Absolutely, so I think yeah. fear, to a certain extent, needs to be utilized in order to keep yeah. order. But it's not only just fear. You also have to keep order and protect, because ultimately, that's the job, through respect and through building relationships. You know, we always talk about how uh, communication is the key to confidence, right? And confidence is kind of the, the underpinning of, of trust, you know, and, and trust is really what we're trying to get to with these relationships. The community has to be able to trust its law enforcement and vice versa. Law enforcement, you know, has to be able to trust the community and, 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 understanding that we all really are on the same team, right? Even in, in these community interactions with law enforcement, we're on the same team because we all, you know, with the exception of a very select few, want to abide by the same laws. We want to have, you know, a similar experience in life in terms of just positivity and opportunities and, you know, just living our lives you know, the best we know how. We all have the same goals. We all you know, essentially serve the same life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You, know, the same. you want your hard work to pay off. Yeah. What, those are the goals. That's what everyone wants. It is. No, it's what we all want. Yeah. Get on in here, Ben. If I, if I, could, if I could just hop into this conversation. Um, I mean, this, uh, well, I, I want to highlight one big thing, and that's what we've been about 
sports like MDs, which is communication. And there are so mm-hmm. many things we could highlight, but I really want to highlight communication. I mean, I don't want to say that all of these issues could have been resolved with communication, but I do know that a lot of issues that have happened so uh, that are so related to social injustice and ones that are not related to social injustice could have been prevented had there just been a fluid, open conversation with just two people from different parties, different backgrounds, different experiences. And this is, it's, it's, it's wild because we've been talking about this for weeks, if, for months. Like, that, th- this has been a consistent theme with sports like MDs. Open communication. Don't be, That's and true. everyone, honestly, I don't know about you guys, but everyone says, have those uncomfortable conversations. Two minutes into those uncomfortable conversations, it feels like, a, it feels like another conversation. You just got to dive headfirst into it, get into the nitty gritty and just say like, okay, like what, what can we do from both, both parties, both parties? Like, what can we do? Just, yeah. And it's just really important. And another thing I, I really want to highlight, and this is, Slightly off topic. Off. This is what Tori. Uh, something of what Tori said a while back. So for me, when I when I understand how something works, I'm able to work with that a lot better. And you'll see what I mean. Listen to what. Go back to the, go back a few minutes and listen to what Tori said. He said when uh, when describing the when he describing the incident with Sterling Brown and the police officers, the amygdala. He said, which is a fight or flight. Um, as, uh, area of the brain, the amygdala flared up. And when the amygdala, which is a fight or flight, when that flares up, it interferes with the frontal lobe. And the frontal lobe is the area that decides the, the decision making. So just think about that. Like, and it doesn't, and mm-hmm. everyone can relate yeah. to that. And when, everyone's and what I, been there. What I, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the reason why I'm highlighting this is just the importance of, you know, taking a step back, taking a deep breath. And just like literally for a nanosecond or a millisecond, and just like take a mental time out and just be like, okay, whoa, whoa. It doesn't matter if you take taking a test, a free throw, anything, just and just the importance of you understand now if you understand that physiologically, that like you understand how like why you actually need to take a deep breath. Because if not, then your decision making skills is gonna be significantly impaired. And then you have these horrendous ramifications. And I, I just thought that was interesting. No, I, I appreciate that, Ben. I wanted to kind of touching on what you were saying. I wanted to kind of zoom, zoom this out a little bit. And I don't want to get too political um, because everything becomes politicized now and then. But I do see these same, um, it all connects with fear. I think fear has become a tool that not only like police use to maintain order, but politicians use to, to get you on their side, to get you on their team. To vote for, for, to have you vote for them, and we see this constantly. Both sides of the aisle, both parties do it. They appeal to your emotions, and they appeal specifically to fear to get you to vote for them. You'll you see this with the Republicans and Donald Trump. We got to build that wall to 1, keep people south of the border out. You'll see you saw it in his speech most recently. He talked about that beware of the Democrats and their socialist agenda. Uh, in the RNC, they also had, they had that couple from St. Louis who, who pointed guns at protesters. They were on there saying, no matter where you live, your family will not be safe in the radical Democrats America. 
Like this, these are exaggerated. How'd your kids, how'd your, how'd your family, how'd your kids? What was yeah. that? <laughs> that, that how'd your wife, how'd your wife? <laughs> how'd your kids, how'd your wife? And this oh is my God. <laughs> they, this, this is, they're doing this specifically for a reason. And this, uh, I'm not going to just single out our president. Every politician does this. They specifically appeal to your emotion center. They appeal to that amygdala into your emotions in order to get you to vote for them because Emotions are powerful. Yes, they are. All of us make decisions based off emotions. And if we get a time to think about our, the, the decisions we made in emotional states, oftentimes we're like, wow, what the hell was I thinking? But this is, this is something <laughs> that's an issue yeah, it is. that we need to discuss. We have to have the conversation. And ultimately, this fear that is, let, that is raised in all of us, this, the, our amygdalas are all hyperactive, that is preventing us from having the conversations. Yes. Ben, you mentioned, why can't we just sit down across aisles and talk to each other? We can't because a lot of this stuff, these issues carry emotional weight. And once we start feeling these weird emotions, we don't know what they are. Boom, our amygdala lights up. We're in fight or flight. We get upset. Uh, we feel like the other person may be insulting me um, because I feel angry or, yeah. or mean. And um, instead of looking in the mirror and realizing that emotion's coming from within me, they projected outwards and oftentimes it's it's the target to which yeah. whatever socialist agenda or democrats or republicans it, it's a lot easier to look outward and, and blame your emotions on someone else than it is to look inward and realize these are things that i need to to work through and these are things that i need to practice i need to practice becoming vulnerable in order to have these conversations in order to to tone down my amygdala I mean, let's let's take it a step further. It sounds like anxiety is is really involved in exa exactly what you're saying. Exactly, and I'm gonna take it a step further because since he since we're talking neuroanatomy, then we should probably talk about the fact that the amygdala, uh, which is how sort of in the uh, the central part of our cortex, right? So our cortex is the uh, the most advanced and let's say human like part of our brain. So it's the part of our brain that really enables us to have voluntary decision making. It's like the conscious part. And personalities and insight and judgment and reasoning and, and all these things. And, uh, and our amygdala though is kind of in the central part, whereas the, the, you know, the, the part where there's judgment and reasoning is more on the, on the outer layers. And so when you go deeper into the brain where the amygdala is, you have a more direct connection to that stalk of the brain, which we call the brain stem. It's more automatic. And the brain stem, exactly, is such an important part of the brain for understanding anxiety. Because the, the brain stem is actually the part of our brain that is, is a, literally a super highway of a variety of pathways that ultimately project from our spinal cord, you know, and, and have connections to our spinal cord, and then have connections to the, uh, the wires and transmitters from our arms and legs, right? For, for sensory uh, detection and for motor activity to help us move our bodies. Then ultimately there's also this set of connections and network from our gut and our respiratory centers and those parts of our body, right? That regulate our breathing uh, our heart rate, our pulse, right? Those things are yeah. blood pressure. Yeah, you don't have to consciously so, be like, all right, heart, beat my heart, beat my heart. Exactly. Nope, it's all automatic. Those things are automatic. Uh, and they're automatically um, regulated in the brainstem, in that stalk. And then 
once we get you know some of those signals generated and firing to, to let the brain know hey the pulse is is accelerating our respiratory rate our breathing is starting to pick up uh, our blood pressure is elevating right we started to have this this fight or flight response starts to really become activated that's when our amygdala uh, becomes most activated um, and that the more amygdala becomes activated the more there's a feedback to our frontal lobe to say hey um, you know, let's, let's investigate this. Let's, let's understand why we're having this emotional response. But sometimes the amygdala, you know, it kind of takes over. And, and for, for some of us, our frontal lobe is just not quite as sophisticated uh, enough to, to give the right signal to the amygdala to say, hey, it's going to be okay, all right? We, the feedback signal you want to go back to the amygdala is it's going to be okay. Things are, things are fine. And so the amygdala can, can, can tone down. So I have, I, have a question for, I have a question for the doctors over here. Hold on, Is hold that, on real quick. Oh. I'll be just, Armin, I want to, Armin, in order to do that, you got to practice. Yes. You have, you have, is that what you're going to say, Ben? No, I was going to ask, is that, is that something you, you know, Armin, Armin said, like some people are, have stronger um, frontal cortex and some people don't. So I was going to ask, is that something you can, is that something you're born with? Or is that something you can work on? It sounds like a dumb question. But yeah, a great question. No, great question, Ben. It is a great question. When you first have a panic attack or an anxiety attack, no one's fully equipped to handle that. You have to, and a lot of times, maybe you learn this on your own or, or you learn it from a friend or a relative or your psychiatrist or your therapist, but you have to just come to an understanding like this is going to pass. These are my, my heart's beating out of my chest, but let me, let me take a few deep, deep breaths. Let me just like any other muscle in your body, your frontal lobe is a, a muscle that you have to flex. You have to practice and you have to practice these mindfulness techniques that we talked about. And that gives you the ability to get yourself, pull yourself out of this fight or flight. It also gives you a better understanding and awareness. Like Armin said, everything's going to be okay. This is a false alarm. I talk about all the time with, with regards to the people I talk to when they have a panic attack um, I liken it to like a car alarm that goes off. How many times does a car alarm go off and someone's actually breaking into the car? I feel like I've, I've heard hundreds of car alarms go off in my life and I've never actually seen someone break into a car. So it's a far, <laughs> false alarm. So once you come to understand that, obviously when the alarm goes off the first time, you're going to freak out. But once you to come to it. understand that this is a natural reaction in our body, probably based off when we were running away from predation and lions and what have you, hundreds of thousands of years ago um, that oftentimes it's, it's triggered for another reason and everything's going to be fine. It's coming from within. So we just have to develop that practice and that mindfulness and that emotion regulation skills. Yes, that's right. Cause practice is what helps us to really feel more confident that we can, we can do it. Right. Cause what practice is at the end of the day, it's actually, self-communication, self-talk, right? You're just constantly talking to yourself, building up that muscle. I love the analogy of the brain as a muscle. If we think of the brain as a muscle and these different components like the brain stem, right? The spinal cord, all these things as, you know, parts of a muscle like our arm, right? It has our hand, forearm, upper arm, shoulder, right? It's, it's like four different parts of this unit that we all, we wanna work out all this, you know, everything in some cases individually, to isolate those, those groups and focus on those, we can really think of the nervous system in the same way. You know, it works all together. We have, you know, the, the wires and, and components of our, 
of our peripheral nervous system in our arms and legs connecting to our spinal cord, which is like our central axial frame. And then, you know, the, uh, the spinal cord is connected to our brain stem, which is connected to, you know, our cortex, our frontal lobe, uh, and then what we call the, the deeper structure of the brain, um, the, uh, the amygdala, the, you know, hippocampus, all those good things. Those parts of the brain uh, together are our regulatory mechanisms. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it really is just like a muscle that needs to be trained every day. Yeah. And over time, you will develop increasingly greater amounts of confidence to know that you can do this and it becomes automatic over time. And that's what you want to do. So. Oh, yeah. And then, and then you're more likely to put yourself in com- into conversations, into situations where, which are anxiety provoking for you and which may trigger the fight or flight because you're already well equipped with all the practices to, con- to be able to control that. Um, and Ben, circling back to the question you asked, you mentioned that there are certain individuals who have dysfunction in their frontal lobes or not quite at baseline. Individuals with like ADHD um, have some dysfunction there. Individuals who've suffered traumatic brain injuries and different things like that. But regardless, anyone who practices, who flexes that muscle, it will improve regardless of where your baseline's at. So keep, keep practicing. practicing. Yeah, practice does make perfect, okay? And perfection for us is resilience, right? Resilience is that thing that you just keep building upon and just getting better and getting better. It's never really like an end state goal. It's just something you're constantly working harder to achieve that flow state, you know, that ability to, to really take the pain and convert it into, into pleasure. Um, you know, as one of our, our great guests once, uh, once stated. Oh yeah. And it, it almost, it becomes like this synergistic effect where you, you develop more confidence in being able to, to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations and be comfortable and uncomfortable conversations. And then you have those conversations and guess what? You develop more and more confidence based off those conversations and you develop more understanding of the individual who's coming at you with different ideas and different backgrounds and then we we come to a better understanding and then we get unity and what happens when we have unity we can actually move forward towards our common unity. common goals which armin there it is earlier life liberty pursuit of happiness hard work pays off accountability responsibility freedom and justice for all let's go you know, when I was five years old, man, I remember my kindergarten class, I had police officers from the local community come in and talk to us. It was kind of like, almost like a show and tell exercise. I can't remember if it was one of the classmates' dads that came in or whether it was just, you know, something that uh, the, that police precinct wanted to do as like a community service exercise. But I remember feeling from a very early age as a result of those interactions that police officers were were heroes, you know. They were members of the community that uh, I could look to for support, for protection, you know, who I admired. And they would come in for, you know, assemblies and presentations, just like maybe athletes, you know, would come in. And and I kind of looked at them the same. You know, they're just community heroes. Um, and it's unfortunate how nowadays the perceptions have changed so much. But then again, to your point, Tori, what we're not seeing as much of is the willingness or efforts made to really have that communication, that collaboration between mm. law enforcement and the community in a direct way to facilitate the communication, to build the confidence we all need to get past these fears we have. 
um, yeah. you know, and, and, and learn about each other and, and really, you know, develop a true sense of community. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, more Armin. And the, the last thing I want to talk about is, is we've done episodes on famous coaches, leaders in their sport, Phil Jackson's, Greg Popovich's. Yeah. We've talked about how Adam Silver's done a great job. The NBA appears to be one of the most unified leagues right now. And all those individuals, all those great leaders, what, what they have in common is a great ability to communicate with their teams. And not only that, have their teams be able to find common ground to be able to connect together to have respect for one another in order to achieve success ultimately all these coaches have won multiple rings and have been really successful at their jobs yeah. and it's because of that ability to to create unity so i want to with regards to that when you're going to the ballot box this fall just think about how we all have the same goals at the end of the day um and but we need someone that's a leader who's going to unify us because we're not going to ever reach those goals if we're not unified, if we're not all in this together, or at the very least, if we don't all respect each other or have some sort of common ground where we can come from. Um, do you want someone who's going to continue to be, or do you want someone who's going to be polarizing and divisive and continue to use fear as tactics to get you on their side? Because that leads to more amygdala and less frontal lobe. So ultimately, if you're going to be a great leader and get your team or get your country to achieve what everyone wants to achieve in that country, then you have to be someone who's going to um, unify and not divide. Right. So I'll leave it at that. No, that's, that's very, more, very well more frontal lobe, less amygdala. <laughs> no doubt. That should be, that should be our caption. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Regardless of what political aisle you and like your, your thoughts and your ideas about pol like policies are great. I'm not going to comment on anyone's policies. Yeah. Uh, if you have a le legit rational thought of why you think this policy is better than another policy, that's great. Uh, but you're not going to, these policies aren't going to be effective if nope. the country is divided. Absolutely. Your, your football team is not going to play well if your secondary isn't in communication with the, the defensive line. Like you need to have everyone on the same page in order to be successful, in order for these policies, in order for these game plans to be successful. Absolutely. And hats off. Hats off to the uh, NBA. My two final points are, I agree with, I agree with Tori, but no, not, not even a but. I agree with Tori. I can't overstate this enough. America is fucking huge. And it is, I think people, I don't think people realize how big it is. And I think it's, it's, I was talking to my parents about this the other night. It is nearly impossible to unify this country. Just like unity is definitely the goal. That being said, I, I, I don't know what you guys think. Like there are just so many different regions and so many different um, lifestyles in America. And like, like the, nor the way the Northeast, the way I live my day-to-day -day life and living in, in the Northeast is significantly different than the way you guys live your life just being on the, on the West coast, which is significantly different than like the South and Texas. And then you have Florida and North and it's just it's true. impossible is the wrong word. I, ret I retract that from the statement. It's not impossible to unify this country. I, I think it's, it's extremely difficult to unify any country, but it's just that we were too diverse, not even too diverse. It's just, it's very difficult. So I don't, what do you guys think? I'm glad you brought that up. Well, it's not, yeah, and, and honestly, uh, Ben, you know, we, we have attempted to, to tackle this issue of unity in the past. Uh, and I think what we've sort of come up with is, you're right, 
but there, there is a way to, I think, unify around a few select common goals. Most yeah. things, no, you're that, right, that, it's yeah. not, you know, it's gonna be very difficult to get a consensus. But there are a few common goals, uh, and I think those goals are articulated well in, in the Constitution. And, and I think that President Obama was one, and there's some been, there have been presidents in the past who have been able to articulate some of those, those, those common goals quite well and get the, the country to rally around some of those things um, because they're really more like fundamental human values and, and, and they really speak to fundamental human rights, something that we yeah. all can get behind just for being human. I mean, nowhere in the Constitution does it say that I need to have enough money to afford a jet ski or something like that. Like, let's let's all just focus on on things that we can all get behind. And, and unity, like Armin said, it doesn't necessarily mean we're all entirely in agreement and have a consensus on everything. But we have to reach some sort of common ground, or you have to, we all have to move closer to the middle. Um, yeah. Versus moving yeah. further and further apart, which I, I believe right. we have been doing for quite some time. And probably this dates back before the current presidency as well. So this can't all be just, we can't just blame a specific individual or a specific party. It's the whole system, the whole system's at fault. And this is something where we need a fool. Yeah, it, it's, man, you're, it's just, it's come down to just very, very basic stuff like respect, yep. decency, um you know dignity and uh it's not necessarily about treating each individual like they're actually a biological family member but certainly like a neighbor yeah right certainly like someone that we share the same space uh, we do share some common interests and common values and we're all human um, and there's actually a lot of things that we do have in common even if it's not specifically directly the same you know, it's just we all, for example, have families, you know, we all want opportunities to, you know, excel and get better. Yeah. Um, you know, we all have certain practices that are important to us that mean a lot to us, whether it be religious, spiritual, you know, something to kind of like motivate us to keep going in life, you know, just those kind of things. And, and one more thing, we all are citizens of this great country with tremendous rights and tremendous opportunities and privileges that you wouldn't have anywhere else in the world, frankly. And I think what we have to do is, is realize that each person does have, each person that's an American citizen has certain rights that are inalienable, right? They, they can't be taken from you. Uh, and I think if we all respected each other as not equal necessarily in terms of everything that we do and think and feel, but certainly as citizens, you know, and human beings, I think we can get very far, yeah. much and, further than we have. And been. don't let the fear mongering, the, the individuals, the politicians appeal to these, these emotions and have you believe that the Democrats, the Republicans or other, that, that all Republicans are, are what soulless, pull your bootstraps up, get to work and don't complain. Um, and Ooh. that all Democrats are, wanting to stay at home and eat Fritos and get free handouts the rest of their life. Like that's the picture or like the, they want to paint these pictures like we're polar opposites. But if you have the conversations, get out there, have a conversation with someone that you think comes from a different background or thinks differently than you have a conversation with them and maybe you'll learn something and maybe you'll come to some sort of understanding of why they, they believe that 
this president would be better than this president. Like have the conversation. That's the very least you can do. Need the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Hats off to the NBA and the WNBA for taking the lead, right? On uh, on standing up for for social justice and for you know making things uncomfortable. Um, but but that's what we have to do, right? We we have to get uncomfortable. Yep. We can't just go with business as usual. You know, we can't just go with, uh, you know, the, the same old, same old, you know, in order to, to, to inspire a change, you have to be willing to do things differently. You have to be willing to, uh, you know, take a step outside of the norm and, uh, you know, and feel what it's like to, to go in a different direction and have a new experience. And, and I think that that's really what this protest is all about, right? It's, it's really all about, how do we how do we look at things a little bit differently and envision a different future? It's it's not going to to happen if we continue to to do things the same way. And um, you know, I think it starts after agreeing that we're going to do things differently. It starts with sitting down and having a conversation, right? And and laying it all out in terms of. Uh, you know, what do we all need to have in order to move forward? You know, what, do, what are those things that we all need? What are those things we all can agree on? And then, you know, just like the American way, you know, you look each other in the eye, you shake on it and you say, you know, I, I put my integrity and my word on this, on this agreement that this is what, you know, I'm going to do. And, um, you know, and then we all go out and we work our hardest and, you know, we, we get it done. That's, that's what we do here in this country. Yeah. I, I mean, we don't have all the information in order to, you need to be someone who's thirsty for knowledge and try to understand someone else's experience. And that's through conversation. I, I wanted to circle, circle back to something we talked about earlier about these athletes. Yes. I think w- what we always forget, and we're talking about these athletes playing these child games and making millions of dollars oftentimes and being famous is it's still a job at the end of the day. And, and for those of us who work quote unquote normal jobs, like we have other interests outside of our job. These athletes have other interests and priorities oftentimes outside of their job. So when an individual like Amaya Moore takes a full year off the WNBA to, to try to, to overturn a wrongful conviction, mm. then that's amazing. More athletes should, we should encourage people to follow what they're passionate about. And if it doesn't involve entertaining us, then so be it. Like everyone has their own priorities. Everyone has things that they value and they're humans just like us. And, and Armin, the one thing I love about the sports like MDs, Ben, Armin, we're all, we're thirsty for knowledge. That's why we did this. Right. We love having conversations. That's, that's why Armin and I started this podcast is because we noticed we would just have these heated arguments and conversations and debates about mental health and about sports and we wanted to to share it with people and we wanted to bring people into the conversation to learn new things to gather new information so i'm i'm grateful that we have this platform now we we have some some listeners that have been tuning in um this is what this is episode uh what 48 so closing in on 50 episodes and i'm I'm just grateful man oh yeah gratitude for sure now it's so much to be thankful for um you know and, and and that's the thing um you know, sports has been, I think for all three of us, such a special, special part of our lives. It's, it's, it's 
created for us uh, opportunities to test and challenge ourselves to get better as, as, as men. Um, and then, you know, sort of as fans, it's just gave us great entertainment and great lessons, like life lessons to learn. Uh, and so, you know, we, we have to get behind 100% these athletes. Like we have to support them 100% because they really do bring something that no one else can. You know, they're, they're special people um, and they really do transform lives in a number of ways. And so uh, I'm always going to be, you know, fully supportive of things that, that will ultimately help make them better and their experience better. And I love the fact that they have decided to be the, the leaders of change for this new uh, social justice uh, and racial equality movement. And, um, you know, they, they really invigorated Black Lives Matter in a way that, uh, you know, I think could not have been, been done otherwise. And you mentioned, Tori, earlier, um, you know, a lot of the ways in which fear uh, sort of changes narratives and changes people's hearts and minds about things. And, you know, speaking of Black Lives Matter, you know, here we are with a movement that really is all about trying to, to create a, a positive message, a message of love, uh, hope, and inspiration, and say, hey, can you look at a person that's different from you? It's not about black or white as far as like actual skin color and race. It's just about, can you look at someone who's different, right? And see them as someone who is similar, right? In terms of your values, in terms of your interests, and not as someone who you, you know, should hate, but as someone that you can love. Can you love someone different from you? Can you trust someone different from you? That's what it's all about. That's what Black Lives Matter is. It's not a hate group, you know, it's not the Black Panthers, you know, from, uh, not that, well, the Black Panthers weren't a hate group either, but they were certainly painted that way by the media. And, and now it almost seems like there's this uh, uh, movement now to sort of paint Black Lives Matter in a similar way uh, as the ones, for example, responsible for the riots. Um, no, what, what it is, is a group of people who want to bring about positive change uh, for their own communities and, you know, the other communities of the world. And that, that message is all about, can you look someone else in the eye who's different from you and see someone who's a human being and see someone who's worthy of love, trust, and respect? And if you can, then, then you too can say Black Lives Matter. I got nothing else to add, man. I... I want to keep these conversations going um, and feel free out there. If you're listening to join the conversation, hit us up on uh, any of our social medias and let's go. Continue the conversation. Right, Very last thing. I just want to end this on a big note on a, on a nice note on top of every, everything you said, major shout out to the Milwaukee bucks. They sat out game five. They were. They had no. They didn't think. The, they didn't know if the Magic were going to see that or not. They sat out Game Five, saying we're going to take a loss. We're going to. We're going to forfeit a fucking playoff game. Excuse my language. We're going to forfeit a playoff game. And I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But a team forfeiting a playoff game for social justice. I mean, that you 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 talk about actions speak louder than words. Damn, damn. As 
Yeah, we don't have to get the intricacies, but I love that the NBA it is a 50-50 split, so players hold a lot more power. I'm going to be interested to see what happens this NFL season because that's that uh, ownership versus uh, management versus player situation is a little bit oh, different th- differently so there. Curious. So there's going to be a lot of this. Listen, people get sick. Keep politics out of sports. I would say this isn't about politics. This is about common sense and, and about decency. Being a person. And about being a person. And it's about human rights. Human yeah. rights. You Unfortunately, know. It, it will take political efforts in order to right some of these wrongs because you you have to have the top-down approach, but we got to do bottom-up. It starts here. It starts with each of us. Um, have those conversations. You know, the, 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 the Old Testament has a really good saying in Hebrew, and that means Love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh, I love that. Treat I love that. people the way you want to be treated. I, I, if you need a religion to tell you that, if you need a psychiatrist to tell you that, if you need a bachelor's degree to tell you that, I don't know who needs to tell you to tell you that. Or your coach. It doesn't or matter. Your president, Just ideally. Treat people the way you want to be treated. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Don't let that amygdala get in your way. Lower the amygdala and increase the frontal lobe. Communication. Speak out to stand up. Yeah. That's what it's about. Speak out to stand up. Yes. Yeah. All right, y'all. We had we had fun today. This was this was a fun one. I, I enjoyed this. Yeah. Let's continue the conversation. <laughs>